Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. We all know that artificial intelligence is here to stay. But how many of us know the full extent of what this means? And I'm not just talking about the obvious things, like the threat to our jobs or the potential dangers of surveillance. What about the deeper issues, like the impacts on our legal systems, our politics, our economies and our environment? Today's episode features an on-stage discussion with Professor Kate Crawford, one of the world's leading researchers into the social and political implications of AI. In her new book, called The Atlas of AI, Kate has meticulously mapped how these new, rapidly evolving technologies are affecting our lives and our planet, and in doing so, has revealed how little we actually understand them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Smart is Artificial Intelligence? My name is Ray Johnston. I'm a STEM journalist. I'm the host of tech podcast, Queens of the Drone Age, and I'm quietly becoming more concerned about my smart home devices listening to me. But I am also very happy to be your host for today. The first technologists were the sovereign First Nations peoples of this continent. Their knowledge passed down through the generations of the oldest continuing cultures on Earth, despite attempts to erase them. And it's with that sentiment that I acknowledge we are standing on the unceded land of the Gadigal, and I pay my deep respects to their elders past and present, and I extend that respect to any of my First Nations aunties and uncles, brothers and sisters that may be here with us today. Artificial intelligence is a part of our everyday lives. It's also far from neutral because it's often built on misogynistic systems of power. In this session, I will be chatting with Kate Crawford, a leading academic on the social and political implications of artificial intelligence. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest. Over a 20-year career, she's held academic positions around the world. She co-founded the AI Now Institute in New York and is the inaugural chair of AI and Justice at the École Normale Supérieure. Her latest book is Atlas of AI on power, politics and the planetary costs of AI. Please welcome her to the stage, Kate Crawford. Thanks so much, Kate. I'm so excited to talk to you. Hi, Ray. It is such a treat. And I love your your entire podcast. So it's just a thrill to be here talking to you in person. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now, your new book is called The Atlas of AI. And when I think of an atlas, I think of maps of our planet. And when I think of AI, I think of maths I can't see. (laughs) So why do we need an atlas for artificial intelligence? And how does that even work? Mm. Oh, look, you're exactly right. I mean, when we think about AI, do we think about math and code and numbers? But one of the things that has always really motivated my work um, has been thinking about the social, political, and even the ecological implications of large-scale computation. And it was funny, when I started doing this sort of research um, sort of over 15 years ago now, um, it, it struck me as really strange that artificial intelligence was really only understood in this very narrow way as a technical discipline. And if you looked at all of the AI institutes around the world, 
world. They were technical institutes. They would teach you how to code and design algorithms. But none of them were studying or even looking at what the implications might be if you use these systems in healthcare or in education or criminal justice hiring. So it became really clear to me early on that we had to start looking at artificial intelligence in a much bigger scope. And the reason why I like the, the sort of the metaphor of the atlas is that atlases help us look at things at different scales. We can look at the scale of a planet, or we can zoom in to sort of a city or, or a mountain range. And for me, that's the right metaphor for how we think about the way that AI works. Because in every sense, it's, it's using vast amounts of energy, minerals, but also human labor, yeah. and also data, primarily scraped off the internet. So I started to think about AI as this emerging extractive industry of the 21st century, almost in the same way that, that mining was the sort of emerging extractive industry of the 18th century. So that sort of required this idea of putting AI in a bigger landscape, um, and hence the idea of creating an atlas of AI. Makes a lot of sense now when you explain <laughs> it like that. Now, you've created an image that shows the life cycle of an Amazon Echo. How did you make this, and can we see it? Yes, there is this picture. So, um, this... <laughs> I know it's probably not what you expect. If you've ever seen an Amazon Echo, it's just like a little cylinder that you probably sit on your kitchen bench or in your bedroom if you're not afraid of listening devices. Um, and, and these devices are sort of designed so that you can can do sort of essentially voice-enabled commands to an AI system. You can say, Alexa, what's the weather going to be today? Or Alexa, play my favorite song. Um, and I was really interested in what does that moment of convenience cost us? What, what, what network do you summon into being by having that little interaction? And so I had the profound privilege of collaborating with a data visualizer by the name of Professor Vladanjola. And he and I sat down one day and we were like, how would you visualize what essentially an Amazon Echo is doing. And so we started off with thinking about the data layer. So that's like the obvious piece down the middle. It's like all the data servers and the extraction farms and how you actually go through the process of analyzing vocal commands. But then we went, you have to think bigger than that. You have to go back to what are the components inside the box? Where do they come from? Where are they mined? Where are they smelted? How does, how does that get from A to B? Where are the sort of the, the logistics and the shipping? And then what is the end of life of one of these devices over here? Is it they sort of end up in e-waste tips in Pakistan and Ghana and, and wherever people will take it. Actually, China used to take a lot of the e-waste until they decided it's too toxic, we won't do it anymore. And so it's really one of these things where countries that are sort of poor enough to say, all right, we'll take this sort of toxic sludge are doing so. So we then mapped this whole thing as a gigantic life cycle from birth, life and death of a single Amazon Alexa. And, and then this piece kind of bizarrely took off. I mean, it, it's seen normally even larger than this. It's about sort of seven meters by five meters, so oh, wow. you can sort of see any particular part of the cycle. Um, and then it became sort of this, this piece that was shown in galleries around the world, which is really exciting. It's in the Museum of Modern Art at the moment, isn't yes, it? Yes, well, actually, yeah, MoMA acquired it in their permanent collection, so it's, it's there forever now. That's You'll be able to see it whenever you want. <laughs> and 
did the process of doing this change how you thought about AI? Profoundly. I have to say, I mean, I, I, I count this project, uh, which we started now um, over five years ago, as the genesis of really sort of my thinking now about artificial intelligence as an extractive industry. That, you know, AI doesn't work unless you have mining. It doesn't work unless you have sort of exploited labor throughout the supply chain, you know, from all of the parts of the world where these components are drawn from. And then in terms of labeling the data that's being harvested off the internet that will then be used to make all the devices work. So also just going through this process of researching all of the layers of what it takes to create global planetary compute was extraordinary because it's really hard. <laughs> I'll be honest <laughs> with you, it's actually, it was extremely difficult to find out, you know, what are all the, you know, the rare earth minerals that go into a single Amazon Alexa and, you know, where are the mines located and, and what are the policies in terms of how much people are paid in those mines or in some cases barely paid at all. Um, and then to go through all of those, those parts of the supply chain, which are generally kept opaque. And that's the thing for so many of us when we try to think about AI is that it, so much of it is kept at arm's length or is completely invisible in terms of understanding how it works. And, and that, to me, becomes more and more a, a democratic question. If we can't see how these things work, how can we judge when and how we should use them? Yeah, and one of the things that we do know about AI is that there is a big gender bias within it. And we've seen this manifest in hundreds, if not thousands, of different ways. You know, women not being shown high-paying ads, Mm -hmm. you know, facial recognition technology not detecting the faces of women or colour or detecting right. them inaccurately and, you know, resulting in law enforcement situations which are entirely avoidable. Yes. We know that this happens and we've known for years that this has been happening. So mm -hmm. why is it still happening? Well, this is a really important question, and particularly here at All About Women. Uh, and it was funny, actually, that Ray and I were, were sort of joking before the session about if you do a Google search on AI and you just click images to see all the images that you get for AI, this is what you get. Um, you get robots, you get, like, you know, probably a circuit board. Um, they all kind of look vaguely mannish, um, very white, so obviously the future is white robots. Um, it's, a, it's a whole new form of white supremacy. Um, you have men in suits in front of control panels. You know, I mean, this is what it looks like. But in actual fact, um, what we get is, is much more like this, um, which is, you know, sort of not this sort of blue code neutral objective environment, but actually profoundly skewed systems that have been found to do things like, obviously, facial recognition systems that can't detect women of colour. We have um, Apple's credit card that was found to be giving men... 80 times the credit of women for all applicants, regardless of their financial status. Um, and of course, Amazon's uh, own AI system for scanning resumes, which they were trialing for a couple of years. Um, and this system was used so that they didn't have to look at all of the resumes that people sent in. And it was found after testing this system for years, mind you, that all women were being downvoted by the system. If you even had the word woman on your CV, like, coach of the women's soccer team, you would be put on the bottom of the pile. And you ask the question of why is this? Well, for me, the Amazon case is so powerful because you can sort of, it makes complete sense. They trained the AI system on the data of their previous successful applicants, their existing workforce. Guess what the gender representation is of the existing workforce of Amazon? Yeah, well, you're right. In the engineering side, it's over 85% male. 
And that's, I think, a generous Amazon estimate. So you can see if you train an AI system on the data of the past, you can actually build it into the systems of the future. You inculcate and embed those inequities to be perpetuated in an ongoing sense in time. And we have seen this time and time again uh, in multiple cases. Now, I don't want to oversimplify. There are many ways in which bias creeps into systems. But certainly what we've learned is that it's, it's sort of really primarily around these two big areas. And the first one is technical, and I'll just speak to that briefly. Um, this is a sort of a visualization of ImageNet, which is sort of you know, one of the most well-known sort of databases that AI is sort of trained on and compared against. Um, and, and this is really sort of on the technical side to understand why we keep having these sexist and racist systems is you have to sort of look under the hood at the infrastructures of seeing. You know, how is the world being seen and interpreted by technical systems? Well, we do it by training them on thousands, sometimes millions of pieces of data. It could be images, if it's an image system, or it could be text, if it's a language system. Where does that come from? It's scraped off the internet. So if you're scraping text off Reddit, where you've got 15-year-old you know, boys talking about you know, <laughs> hilarious jokes about girls, that then becomes the textual basis of your system. If you're scraping it off you know, Yahoo News, which a lot of the, sort of the early uh, image databases came from, you'll get a sort of very celebrity-skewed kind of vision of what the world looks like. Again, very sort of white, dominant, male-dominant visions of the world. So at the technical level, we have to look at infrastructures and say that's part of the problem. But there's another problem too, which we don't talk about as much, which is the social side, which is who is in the rooms the way we actually design AI systems. You know, who are the engineers who get to decide, this is a problem that we can resolve with AI, and these are the people for whom this will work best. We also have to look at who runs these companies. I mean, if you've looked at the CEOs recently or the founders of you know, the biggest tech companies in the world, you know their names. It's Jeff Bezos, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's, you know, it's, it's all of the kind of the, the names that we know well from almost entirely white men. Yeah. And I think that has skewed the kinds of thinking and the kinds of priorities that these technical systems are serving. Um, and obviously, they're served to, they're created to make a lot of money. Um, and so, you know, they're not here as civic infrastructures, but I think we commonly think they are. There's a mistake that we assume that, oh, Facebook is really here just so that we can communicate with our friends and share news. Isn't that fantastic? So great. Until, of course... We get last week uh, when, of course, they start having a fight with the Morrison government and decide to just switch off the tap. And then you realise, no, this is a private infrastructure, purely yeah. for profit. And as much as they have tried to... F they've really spent a lot of money for us to believe that this is really there for our soccer clubs and our friends and our, you know, student groups. But it's not. And this is the, the very big trap, I think, when we start to look at the way that we've come to rely on these civic infrastructures. Yeah. So there has been also a lot in the news lately I've seen about the ability of artificial intelligence to be able to look at our faces and read our innermost thoughts, feelings and emotions. Yes, like this one. Um, yeah, there was this one that came out, uh, gosh, it was just last month. Um, yeah, that, that claimed that this was an AI system that could read children's emotions as they learn. I'm curious, what have you been thinking about this one, Zoray? Are, are you convinced? <laughs> I'm not convinced, I'm going to say. No, I, I think that, especially in instances, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about how women present themselves to the world, you know, we've been trained a lot by society to hide mm. how we're feeling in some instances. You know, we're, we're trained to be nice and polite and smile at people so that they don't, you know, be 
mean to us or worse. So I don't think that there would really be an ability for an algorithm to be able to detect what we're feeling on the inside by just looking at clues on our face. That's right. my hunch. And your hunch is exactly correct. Yes. But believe it or not, there is a $90 billion industry that is trying to sell you the opposite idea. Why? Which is that it can scan your face and detect one of seven core emotions, anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, surprise, and of course, one bonus, neutral. Um, <laughs> And, you know, and it was funny to, to see these systems and to say, well, where does this come from? You know, first of all, where is this assumption that to look on someone's face is to know the true inner state of what they're feeling? <laughs> I mean, as any of us, you know, would have, have ever smiled at a photographer when they're having a photo taken, we're like, this is not what I'm actually feeling. I worked in hospitality for 15 right? years. <laughs> I was not that happy, I tell you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> spot on, spot on. So, yet, nonetheless, there is this assumption that, you know, if we use machine learning to look at the micro expressions in your face, we can tell your true inner state. Now, this would be laughable and we could, we could sort of ignore it if it wasn't for the fact that these tools are now being built into, for example, HR and hiring. So at multiple big companies in the US, Goldman Sachs, Unilever, American Airlines, if you take a job interview, you are being recorded at the same time by one of these systems and they are tracking the micro expressions in your face and then comparing your face and your expressions to a whole lot of these sorts of sort of six point scales or what emotions you're feeling and then comparing that to successful applicants of the past. So you end up, of course, creating these echo chambers where you hire people who look and talk like the people that you've already hired. Um, and of course, you know, for me as an academic, I, I'm always just like, where does this taxonomy come from? Where does this idea of six emotions and that the idea that you, know, you could read inside somebody's state, well, actually, it goes back to the 1960s. And it really is, you know, this core idea was, was pioneered by one psychologist by the name of Paul Ekman. And bless him, you know, Paul Ekman, you know, he had this vision that he just said, look, I'm sure that there is this idea of universal emotions. And he'd had fights with anthropologists like Margaret Mead, who'd said, absolutely no, it's cultural, it's contextual, mm. it's relational. Yeah. We changed the way we look in a moat, depending who we're talking to and the context we're in. But he was like, no, I'm absolutely convinced there's just six. And he, he sort of went on this mission, um, believe it or not, to Papua New Guinea, and he, he tried to find a remote tribe that hadn't been exposed to Western media. So he could show them these cards and say, does this look, what, what emotion is this to you? And in fact, that first trip to Papua New Guinea was an epic failure. He'd never done cross-cultural research before, and so he didn't know how to work with the translator, and, and it ended up being this total mess where people were saying, what, what does he want with these, these six <laughs> photos? Like, what is he trying to do? But ultimately, he kept doing these sets of studies over time and kept claiming that, that this was, you know, indeed a way you could simplify human emotion. And, and it's, it's an idea that caught on. And it strikes me that the reason why it's caught on in artificial intelligence is because it's a theory that fits the tools. Machines can track certain patterns that repeat over time. It's just statistical pattern recognition. Oh, the mouth goes up, you must be happy. Oh, the no. mouth goes down, you must be sad. Um, and so what we get, I think, are these kinds of really kind of problematic sort of mechanical interpretations of what it is to be human. And I think it really narrows the understanding of what it is to be embodied and emotional and relational. And it, it mistakes the external appearance for an interior reality. But it wouldn't matter if these weren't being built into hiring and criminal yeah. justice and everything. I mean, these systems are having an impact right now.
That's terrifying. Yeah, if they were just existing as a, you know, a theory, an idea, something fun to play with, but the fact that it's being <laughs> built into our future right. and will have real impacts on our lives and the opportunities that are available to us. So that, that is a little bit scary. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, w I wish it were a happier story, but I mean, I think this is, this is why it's important to have these sorts of discussions because it, it strikes me that we have a pretty short window of, you know, really a few years to start pushing back on some of these presumptions. Yeah. And in some of these cases, it, I see it as, as really problematic science. Often the science is faulty. But often the impacts of who sees the downsides of these systems is exactly what you think. It's women, it's people of color, it's you know, the economically marginalized. It's people who are already seen as somehow you know, not, not the center ideal, sort of the white man center on which these systems are often designed and designed for. These are the people who experience the greatest downsides. Mm. So it is ultimately, in some ways, I see this as the civil rights issue of the next decade. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about uh, having workplaces full of people that are essentially all the same, but robots taking our jobs. You hear that one a lot. As you know, yes. everything becomes more automated, as basic tasks are done by machines as opposed to people, you know, there is this idea that, you know, labor will change, how you know, labor looks in the future will change. What's your perspective on this? Well, I think it is one of the most common stories that we hear about AI is that AI is taking our jobs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, oh, I know, it's all good. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you're good, you're fine. Um, but, it, but it's interesting to see, you know, the jobs that are seen to be sort of easily mechanized that will be replaced. And, and absolutely, we are seeing, certainly post-COVID or during COVID, a push towards automating as much of the workplace as possible to try and move away from human workers. So that is happening. But the other thing that I'm really interested about is what happens to these semi-automated, semi-human workplaces. And one of the things that I did for the book is that I got access to go inside one of Amazon's fulfillment centers, fulfilling, very fulfilling, <laughs> where they sort of do distribution. Um, it's the logistics nodes for Amazon. Um, so I went inside one of the biggest ones on the east coast of America. This is in Robbinsville in New Jersey. And it was kind of extraordinary because the the minute you go in, um, you're aware of the robots. So they have Kiva robots that are kind of moving across the floors and carrying these huge stacks of all of the things that we order from Amazon. But then you have the people. And the people almost sort of so frequently, everyone's wearing safety vets, vests. But some people, you know, have bandages, support bandages. As you can see, lots of, you know, sort of repetition strain injury support uh, bandages on people as they're doing the work of picking and sorting all of the objects that we buy. Now, you know, it's one thing to sort of enjoy the convenience of Amazon, but for me, it was really quite shocking to see sort of the physical toll. And, and that physical toll is algorithmically mediated. There is a system they use inside of all of Amazon's distribution nodes worldwide called the rate. And what that means is that if you're a picker, and a picker is a person who gets the things out of trays and then puts them in another tray to go into the bag to go to the person, as you're picking, there's a screen in front of you which tells you if you're picking fast enough relative to your other pickers and relative to the rate. And the rate is algorithmically determined. And if you fall behind the rate, you get penalized. If you get penalized a certain number of times, you get fired. Ooh. So you're kind of working against this rate all the time. And I was you know, talking to workers who said, oh, you know, I've been skipping, trying to skip meal breaks, and I'm just, it's so stressful because I'm trying to keep up this rate. Because again, the rate is, is sort, of, sort of algorithmic representation of sort of the profit imperatives of Amazon. And so, you sort of see these spaces and you say, this is not AI human augmented collaboration. No. This is an extreme time and sort of physical pressure that's being forced on people through these kinds of 
part robotic, part algorithmic environment. So in some ways, I see these spaces as the metaphor of what work is looking like. It's people under sort of forced conditions of increased surveillance, increased time pressure, sort of algorithmic determinations of efficiency. And I see them as a, as a really cautionary tale of how we have to think very carefully about the use of AI in the workplace. It's like the message that they're sending to those people is prove to me that we shouldn't just replace you with one of the robots that you're seeing going past you. Well, exactly right. And, and what you might have noticed just this week is that there has been a huge move by Amazon workers to unionise. Yeah. And Amazon has been pushing against this um, in subtle and unsubtle ways for years, including... Bezos, the richest man in the world, can't he afford to pay his workers properly? Phenomenally. I'm so wealthy that it's, it's just... And he got so much wealthier during COVID. It's just mind-blowing the amount of wealth this man has. He could easily give everybody, uh, you know... A, a pay rise to be getting you know, $100,000 a year if he wanted to, and in a, a second would never touch his wealth reserves. So, I mean, it, it's an extraordinary example of the kinds of um, unevennesses and injustices and why thinking about labour rights in an AI environment is going to be so important. Yeah, so this is one of the places that you travelled to yes. while creating this atlas, but you also travelled to places where, as you spoke about earlier, the, the raw materials of AI are being extracted. Right. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the environmental piece. And, and, and the funny thing is, I feel like this is the least told story when it comes to artificial intelligence. They have this impression of being a green and sort of planet-friendly industry, because it's just math, it's just code, you know. It's blue and white robots. It's just blue and white robots, <laughs> you know, in the air, in the cloud. Um, <laughs> not doing anything, but it, it's truly one of the most energy-intensive industries we have. Um, before COVID, just data centres alone were starting to beat out the airline industry for having the largest carbon footprint. Post-COVID, much greater than the airline industry. Mm. So, I mean, if you look at the use of data and things like Netflix and everything, just the fact that we've moved online at such, such a dramatic rate around COVID, of course, just seeing the amount of energy that's being spent by planetary compute is shocking. So one of the things I did for the Atlas is I wanted to visit the locations where you would see extraction, not just for energy, but also for the minerals that go into the creation of sort of the physical material realities of building everything from computers, devices, and sort of all of the back-end parts of data centers. Um, so I went to this place. This is Silver Lake in Nevada, um, in the Clayton Valley. And this is the last functioning lithium mine in the United States, because there's no lithium left. It's all been mined out. This is the last one. Now, the reason why this is a hotly contested piece of land is because, of course, lithium is essential. It's the only thing we have got for rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. Now, lithium-ion batteries are in almost everything that you use, which is sort of in the technical systems that we understand from our phones to our Amazon Echoes, even to to our electric vehicles. So EVs, take a Tesla, takes around 60 kilograms of this material of lithium straight out of the earth. And unfortunately, we have very limited reserves. Um, there are sort of various reserves around the world, but they're dwindling. And a recent report has just shown that depending if we figure out a way to recycle lithium-ion batteries, which, by the way, we suck at. We have extremely low rates because they're very toxic, very difficult to recycle. If we don't fix that problem, we're going to run out of lithium somewhere between 2040, if we don't recycle, or 2100, if we do. 
And this is a, we don't have another way of actually thinking about sort of, you know, rechargeable batteries. Yeah. This is not, not a thing that we can do yet. So we're, we're looking at the real sort of end of life cycle where there are many sort of minerals in the chain of how we do large scale compute that are really reaching a point where we're going to just use them up. And so going to this place and sort of thinking about how long we have to sort of just use these things as though they're infinitely replaceable, I think that logic is, has had its day. I think it's done. I think it's time to look at why artificial intelligence is part of a much broader system of computation that is really one of the biggest environmental risks that we have right now. And so there's been lots of papers that have been coming out just recently very controversially by a couple of Google researchers, again, looking at just the energy costs mm -hmm. of doing uh, natural language processing AI, um, which, again, is, is shocking. People don't know about this. So I think this is, again, one of the big stories that, for me, was mind-blowing, researching the Atlas of AI and, and going to the places and just realizing this is it, this is all we have, and there's, there's not going to be another reserve that we just discover. Um, and if not, we're in big trouble. And yet, at the same time, we've got such a huge push to you know, electric vehicles and Precisely. You know, the, the technology of the future is right. using a lot of these batteries. That's so it. That's it. And again, it's that sense. You're like, oh, we've all got electric vehicles now. We did the right thing. It's the <sighs> right thing for the planet. But guess what? Then we have another problem, which is that we're relying on these sort of dwindling reserves of lithium. So I, I think to some degree, the lesson here is so many of these questions are kept at arm's length and are kept invisible and hidden. Yeah. And without looking at them, you can't really make decisions about what, what, what you do or what's worth doing. But I also don't want to make this sound like it's a consumer, a consumer choice story. It's not. It's not like, oh, just you know, choose the right you know, <laughs> you know, uh, compute platform and suddenly you know, you're, you're doing it the green way. control. We'll all be fine, Ex like, Exactly. No. It's, it's a much bigger question yeah. about how we are sort of creating systems that are fundamentally unsustainable. Absolutely. Now, you end the book with a discussion about the modern-day space race between our friend Bezos and <laughs> Elon Musk. Why did you end it there? Mm. Are you telling me something about where the future of AI is headed? Because from what you've said, AI in space is just another layer <laughs> of terrifying now. Um, yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that. It's like, what will AI look like in space? Um, for me, it's like looking at the, the ultimate extension of the ideology of artificial intelligence, right? Which is this sort of this myth that we can kind of produce enormous efficiencies and sort of forget the kind of legacies um, of, of, you know, of extraction that these tools are based on. So it strikes me as not a coincidence that the men who made their fortunes from artificial intelligence, so many of them, are all now focused on leaving the Earth. So <laughs> it's... I think it's a hint, right? I think they're telling us something. Um, and it, it's, it's extraordinary when you really look at, at sort of, so I, one of the things I did was sort of, you know, go to Jeff Bezos's uh, reusable rocket launch facility in West Texas, um, where you can sort of go and sort of see the base. And I also looked at all of this, this is what it is here. It's in this huge kind of Permian basin, this ancient landscape in the desert in West Texas. Um, and of course, you know, it's very hard to see. This is a, a sort of a, a shot at long distance from public land. But, um, but all of the ideology around Blue Origin, which is the name of his company, is that, you know, the Earth is running out of resources. We have to maintain growth. And the only way we can do that is by going into space and mining asteroids and actually creating off-world colonies where humans can live. And we leave the Earth, presumably, for, you know, 
for the occasional visit for the very wealthy. Um, but the vision of the future is so astoundingly terrifying to me, which is complete abrogation of responsibility and ultimately a departure from the earth entirely. It's like we've used it, it's used up, time's running out, we have to leave. And to me, there's just something so shocking about that as the end point of, of these great technologists' vision. It's just not about how do we find a way to, to make this planet sustainable. It's the only one that really does work for us. But we have to, again, invest in this imaginary, this fantasy of living on Mars, which, of course, is Elon Musk's version, when we simply don't have any technology currently available that would even allow us to do that to get there, let alone to live on a planet as inhospitable as Mars. It's nonsense, folks. It's nonsense. So, but it's extraordinary that this nonsense is so powerful. Yeah. And again, it's, 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 to me, it's a type of ideology that, you know, again, it's like, oh, it's innovation, it's space, it's excitement, it's and showmanship. Space is exciting and fun. Precisely. And it sounds space. great, you know. Absolutely. Science fiction is great too. <laughs> but, you know, it strikes me we have some real world issues that mm. we really should be investing all those billions and all of that engineering thought and time on the planet we actually have. And to me, that's not just an ecological politics, but it's also a feminist politics. I mean, this is something that, you know, feminists have said for a very long time, is thinking about our relationship to other people, our relationship to other beings, and our relationship to the Earth. And that is something that has so fallen away from the highly male-dominated AI and space race um, that I think it's, it's really... It's, an incredibly important moment to start questioning these politics. It's like, like, what is the politics that would say, let's automate everything and then abandon Earth? Because that's really, if you, if you lay it out, that's the logic of, of these industries right now. And when you do consider just the sheer amount of funds and resources at the fingertips of these men, mm. the choices that they could make that would benefit the Earth and the people on the Earth, the fact yeah. that they're looking elsewhere instead. I'm angry at them, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you, you know, you're talking about the most extraordinary aristocracy that we you really have to go very far back in history to find anything like the smallest number of kings and queens that you would find right now in terms of thinking of the, the great houses of AI. I mean, you're really talking about sort of fewer than a dozen companies worldwide that can do planetary compute, and of that, really only two or three are dominant. And when you think about the super billionaires, um, Another list came out just this month that showed of the top 10 richest men, and they are men, uh, in the world, the top six all come from big tech. So, I mean, it, to see that shift, again, from the traditional extractive industries of oil and gas now, which, again, were previously the sources of, you know, great wealth for the very few, that's really shifted to big tech in the last 25 years. And it's at a time in our planet's history where I think our awareness is growing that we cannot sort of rely on systems that are ultimately just making this planet less and less inhabitable. So I hate to say it, but there are good reasons to be angry, but I also think that, for me, writing this book was about actually connecting with an optimistic vision of how we actually have to change. We Absolutely. have to change our thinking. We have to change the questions we ask when we just you know, are presented with technical systems that will supposedly make everything objective, neutral, more efficient, that we actually have to push against those sorts of 
I think, just assumptions and to say, how do these systems work? What are they taking from us? And what are these longer-term planetary consequences of how they work? But to be able to ask those questions, we need to have access to the information about it. And this needs to be presented in a way that we can easily understand and take in. And it needs to be not thought about as an abstract thing that doesn't have an impact on our lives. How do we make sure that you know, people are engaged with thinking about this and, mm. and you know, not shying away from it as a big, scary, complicated, hard to understand topic. Exactly right. I mean, to me, that is the biggest political mission that, that I think we could possibly have. If you're in the space of AI right now, it is a responsibility to be making these systems plain and, and comprehensible to the people who will be most affected by them. And that means we have to be having more public debates like this. We have to be sort of you know, opening up the boxes of, of AI to say, here's how these things function, here's where they fail, and here's why they fail and here's who they're failing for. Because again, you know, it's, it's predominantly the people who are already marginalized who are experiencing the, the worst downsides of these systems. And the other thing for me, I have to say, is you know, I, I started out as an academic 20 years ago, and, and you know, you're taught to write scientific papers, and you're taught to sort of go to academic conferences, and that's fantastic. That's an important part of what we do. But you know, over the years, I've realized that it's much more important socially that this work is actually done in public in ways that we can have these sorts of public discussions. And also one of the things that's been really important to me is putting it in cultural spaces. Yeah. If you think about the numbers of us who would like, you know, go to uh, an event at the Opera House or you might go to a museum like the Smithsonian or you might go to the Whitney, is to think about how might we actually start using arts and culture to represent how AI works. And this is an example from uh, an exhibition that I did with the artist Trevor Paglen, where we spent two years looking at all of the most sort of common training sets that are used to teach AI systems to quote unquote see the world. Um, and we just, it was extraordinary because we saw like the logics built into these databases in terms of detecting race and gender, where some of these things only assume that there's only two genders, male or female, or that there are four race categories, believe it or not. I mean, these are, again, these are ideas that have been, you know, were, were debunked in the sort of 18 and 1900s that are returning in AI. And then we created these sort of big installations inside the Fondazione Prada in Milan so people could come and see and actually look at these systems and see these broken logics and I think in many ways the politics that underlie them and then to realise, okay, these are the databases that are training how AI works. So it, it, it's, a, it's a nice way, I guess, of making this, the stakes feel both material, you can understand them, but also allowing you a voice to say, okay, I actually have some concerns about how this is working. And I think that's the piece that, that we need, is to sort of move AI away from this highly technocratic, you know, highly esoteric debate to, okay, what does the system do? What is it trained on? How does it affect people differentially? And how are we going to govern it? And how are we going to regulate it? Because guess what? You know, that's the one great gap, I think, of the last 20 years of AIs. All of this technical innovation, and what have we done with regulation? Almost nothing. And so that, for me, is one of the most urgent issues that we face really just in the next couple of years, is to really address how to regulate AI. So if we want to change those training sets that these companies mm. are using, you know, these image banks that put races in four categories, what? Uh, how does that happen? Like, are we mm. just lobbying the people at the top? Like, how, how does that change actually occur? Do yeah. we make our own data sets and go, there you go, use that, I pulled that together for you? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've done projects like that in the past. I did, I did a project called Data Sheets for Data Sets with, with many colleagues. Um, 
uh, we, we really just basically said, look, it's extraordinary that people just use these training sets and there's not even like a, a little guide at the front that says, here's where we got this data from or here's, here's yeah. what it represents or here are some of the privacy concerns you might have mm. reusing it or some of the, you know, that didn't even exist. And so, you know, we, you know, we wrote a paper about this and, and now several companies are using this, but, but I want to be really clear, I think that's too narrow. Because the objective here isn't just how do we demographically balance the faces so that we have, you know, people of all skin tones, or how do we make sure we have, you know, 25 categories for gender instead of two. All of these things, I think, are fundamentally arbitrary and ultimately very narrow, because you're saying how do we tweak a technical system so that it's not so obviously biased or obviously broken. But I think we need to step back and say how do we think about who these systems serve? Do they, in some ways, actually just serve the powerful? If we look at systems for policing and you know, systems that are used for sort of you know, just rampant profit making, and are they actually deepening inequality? And if so, we need to sort of start asking those bigger questions about power, ultimately. It's about AI and power rather than about trying to tweak technical systems to be you know, slightly improved. Yeah. We do now have some time for questions from the audience. So just a reminder, head to sly.do, S-L-I.do, type in the event code, all about women, that's all one word, and select the drama theatre, that's where we are, and ask away. And while I switch to those questions... Don't, don't you miss the feeling where you could just put your hand put up? Put your hand and up and yeah. ask a question. I go, you, over there, what are you going to say? I love that. <laughs> Good thing here, though, is we can get questions from people at home, too. Now, we did touch on you know, the bias that exists within AI, and often that one of the reasons for this is that you know, the, the people that are making these systems, the people that are in the room, the human element, you know, they're not very diverse themselves. Yeah. But from your experience, you've worked in this field for a really long time, what actually needs to change within the industry and within these companies to make them a more welcoming place for women to work? Because mm. you know, I, I see all of these programs, we have coding camps for girls to you know, stop any kind of gender bias at an early age, and you know, we're supporting young women with mentoring programs, and then we're pushing them into workplaces that are still, the vast majority of them are men. Mm. And you know, women are experiencing all sorts of harassments within those workplaces yep. at much higher rates than other people, mm -hmm. and in particular, women of colour. Yep. How, how do we change things at that level so that we're not just throwing everyone to the wolves? Right. I mean, I mean, this is something I know that, that you and I are both really passionate about, which is that there, there was a real sort of tendency, I think, in the last decade to say, oh, we just need girls to code. We'll create coding camps. And, and then we'll just throw them into this industry and everything will be better. Um, without any thought about, you know, what was that industry like to work in? You know, what was the sort of lived experience of being in these industries? And what we've had time and time again are just extraordinary accounts of women being marginalised, being harassed, being made to feel less than sort of their male counterparts. Um, and the, the racial dynamics are really quite extreme. Um, and to, to the point where, you know, we've had tech companies, um, Google as, as the most recent example, you know, who have had such a problem 
with diversity and inclusion, that they've poured millions of dollars into these programs that have achieved very little, that have been deeply criticised by people inside Google, um, and it, it have just been seen as like you know profoundly ineffective. Um, and of course, now we've just in the last few days seen that there's been a big suit that's been brought against Amazon for alleged uh, discrimination against black and female employees throughout their kind of you know corporate structures. So I mean, this is not going away. This is a very serious problem. And so to me, we haven't looked enough at you know how these workplaces function, rather than assuming that women were the problem. It's like, oh, we just need women to code. Um, the other thing that sort of was really chilling to me, this happened a few years ago, some of you might remember, back in 2017, James Damore, who was an engineer based at Google, wrote a memo um, which basically was a screed saying that Google should spend nothing on diversity and inclusion because the reason why there weren't women or enough women working at the company was because women were just biologically ill-suited to computer science. Their brains were different. That was why. And as laughable as it sounds to, to us, um, that actually represents a growing minority of people who believe that, well, actually, you know, biology is destiny, we know women shouldn't really be in computer science, you know, white people are more intelligent than black people. It's this really disturbing sort of turn um, to a very profoundly sort of uh, patriarchal, misogynistic, and I think deeply racist sense of logics. And, and it, I think it really got, it really became empowered under Trump. So, you know, the last four years have really seen a rise of that sort of thinking, and it's just been off the leash. It's just been like, you know, under Trump, you could say and, and, and think these sorts of things. It would previously be seen as pretty on the nose. And it's created a real hostility in workplaces. I think it's, it's something that is, you know, not talked about enough, but I think it's a real problem at the moment. So it's, it's a moment of reckoning, I think, for the entire tech sector to say, you know, how is it going to address sort of the rise of these sorts of, like, really problematic beliefs around sort of biological determinism and, you know, again, the sort of racism and misogyny. Yeah, I've heard uh, your nails are too long. They'd hit the wrong keys. Oh, yes, there you go. That's why we went, right, shouldn't be in computer science. Right. Don't go near a computer. If you've wow. got long nails, it's not for you. Right. All right. Shocking. So I do have an anonymous question here. What are you most hopeful or optimistic about for the future when it comes to AI, especially for women? Please give us something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I have to say it, it's funny, you know, because you hear just so much rah, rah, rah marketing hype about AI, it's important to actually do the real talk about how these things actually work. But believe it or not, I'm actually a closet optimist, and here's why. <laughs> um, I know it's hard to believe, but in some ways, and, and perhaps it's because of the journey that I've been on to really understand these systems, that by looking at artificial intelligence, because it touches on these issues, it touches on issues of you know, racial and gender inequality, it touches on issues of, of essentially climate justice, it touches on issues of, of labour rights, it touches on issues of data protection, that in some ways it becomes this very important nexus where we could talk about the most important political issues of, of, that we face, ultimately. I mean, this is it. So what I see is really exciting in the debates around AI and, and the communities who work on these issues is that they're starting to work together. We're starting to see sort of a new political uprising around that talks about climate justice, labour rights and data protection together. This is we have to think about these things together in order to produce more sustainable technologies, but also more sustainable ways to live. That it's bigger than just technology. And to me, like, that is the most important thing that we're going to have in this moment. Is that how does it change the way we think about politics and how do we bring 
different coalitions together to address these core fundamental problems. So that's the piece that I hope that cheers you up, but what that means <laughs> is that this is the call to action. This means it's for us, and it, it really is for us to see this as the political issue of our time. Got another question here. Uh, Laura Bates talked about YouTube algorithms skewing viewing of teenagers leading to greater radicalisation. Mm -hmm. How can we challenge these algorithms? Well, it's interesting, right? Because if you think about how algorithms were sort of really designed in YouTube, it is maximised for screen time which is to keep you watching as long as possible. And how do you keep people watching as long as possible? Well, first of all, you give them what they already like. So if it can see, oh, you like this sort of stuff, give them more of that. But also you want to keep them excited. It's got to get more exciting and more extreme. So it's got to be like, you saw that, but now see this. Yep. You know, it's like even bigger, even better. So you can see those advertising logics have created a kind of curve in sort of content triggering and sort of content curation, which is sort of around how do you create these kinds of extremes. Now, at the same time, I don't want to make it sound that simplistic because, of course, it is an advertising logic and advertisers don't want to be seen against, you know, what happened in Christchurch. They don't want to be seen against sort of, you know, episodes of people being harmed. They don't want to see it in relation to, you know, really extreme forms of, of horror. Um, so there are some breaking points there too. But certainly the issues around algorithmic recommendation have been one of the biggest problems in terms of what it's created in terms of these kinds of ecologies of, of hyper-extremism. And I have to say, lots of people are working on this. Yeah. It is not an area which is, you know, you could throw a rock and there, there are teams working on it right now. Um, but certainly, I think it, it's, it's interesting because it, it takes us right back to what you were saying, Ray. You know, it's tempting to say, oh, technically, can we fix that? Well, yeah, you can. But you're still going to have this underlying commercial logic of, yeah. well, then how do we keep you watching? What are we going to do next there? So you can see that a lot of these issues are not just technical, but they're really much more sort of socio-technical and commercial. Mm. What are some pointers for designers and coders to make AI inclusive? Well, look, I think that, look, at the moment, let's just say there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an extremely low bar at the moment. Um, so, I, look, frankly, I think there's a, there's a great space for people to, to almost sort of start thinking quite radically about, well, if this is how we're using AI, how might we use it differently? Rather than using AI to kind of track down immigrants in the US, you know, why don't we use it to try and, you know, expose police violence in the US. I mean, these are the sorts of flips that I think many designers um, are now working with. But I think we always have to kind of get back to the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house and the sort of classic Audre Lorde idea that, you know, do we actually have to think at a more fundamental level around how these algorithms understand the world? And there's some really fundamental thinking at the level of, of, of how we're doing the, the basic statistical interpretations that I think is sort of the next big wave. It's like, are there ways to actually resist some of these sort of forms of classification that say we must classify people into sort of, you know, race and gender and sexuality and criminality, these, these you know, AI systems that claim to be able to predict these things for you. These are just tools that shouldn't be made. And there are so many good problems that we could be working on right now. So, so again, that is, that is my hope. That I'll, give you, I'll give you another sort of weird example. Um, 
one of the things that's been interesting is, you know, under COVID, when there was sort of so few people on the streets of major cities, that all of the facial re recognition cameras, there were people who were sort of looking at these systems and saying, oh, we're actually recording lots more animals now, because, you know, the animals sort of wandering the street. And then people <laughs> were like, why don't we just start using this to track rare and endangered species and try and protect those ecologies? And I'm like, what a good use yeah, of yeah, these yeah. sorts of recognition technologies, rather than, again, trying to sort of track down dissidents or, you know, immigrants. So, again, it's like, how do we start to shift the priorities rather yeah. than just the tools. That's, there was an example of a technology like that being used uh, by rangers in the national parks. They're flying drones over areas where they know koalas have been and the drones are equipped with cameras that you know, are then you know, fed into an AI that can recognise the outline of koalas as opposed to possums or you know, birds or other animals in the tree so they can more accurately get numbers of the koalas in different areas. So we can use it for good. It can be, it can be a good thing. <laughs> now, you mentioned e-waste being absorbed by mm. developing countries. Mm. Do you see AI without intervention accelerating global health inequalities? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it already is. I mean, I think, again, one of the great tragedies of where we are in the history of compute is, is the hardware story, because we've had so little thought given to what we would do with this enormous and rapidly growing amount of e-waste. If you just think about how many phones you've had in your life and how many laptops you've had, I mean, it's, those numbers are really quite shocking when you times that over populations of billions. And we haven't thought about where we're going to put it or what we do with it. And again, they leak they leak all forms of toxins. I mean, there's this, you know, one of the things I looked at for the Atlas was there is this sort of lake in Mongolia, which is a black toxic lake, which is just the dumping ground of all of these e-waste tips that have been sort of running into this, this huge lake. And, and these are the legacies. We're, li we're literally terraforming the earth with the legacies of, of e-waste. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's something that I think is, is something we'll be living with for, you know, for, certainly for generations until we can figure out a much better way to be dealing with how we construct and use hardware. Another question here. Early on, women were prevalent in data and computer development. You know, example, human yep. computers. How did they get blocked out and how do we get them back in? Oh, I love this question. Thank you. Um, and let me give a shout Thanks, out. Susie. <laughs> yeah, let me give a shout out to the historian Ma Hicks, who also wrote one of my favourite books on this topic, really looking at sort of women themselves were called computers, the people who were doing data entry. Um, and again, if you look at the sort of histories of the 1960s and 1970s, um, women played a much bigger role uh, in developing computers and actually sort of, you know, understanding and building these systems. And so what happened? I think is very similar to what happens to sort of other industries when suddenly they become very popular and have a lot of money associated with them. And we saw this again with Wall Street when suddenly there's a lot of money in a field that you start to see them become increasingly male-dominated and women get pushed out. Um, and so again, we've seen, uh, we've seen exactly the same thing happen in computer science. If you look at the sort of, again, the, sort of the, the, the gender numbers in sort of the 1980s and the 1990s were sort of much closer to, to you know, we're getting closer to parity, it was more like 60-40, and now it's, it's become extremely male-dominated again. Um, and I think that is, you know, really gets down to, you know, the way that we have constructed these industries, what is being prioritised and the way in which, again, we sort of value or d don't value women's work. Um, and I think that has to change, and that fundamentally has to change, but the histories show us that those industries are plastic, they do shift. It's not biology, it's not you know, <laughs> women's brains, meaning they don't want to go to computer science. Um, so I think, that, I think there is certainly a space to start thinking again about you know, 
the, those gender politics of, of you know, who gets hired into these companies and why. How dangerous are Facebook, Google Home, and other devices that listen in the long term? Thank you for whoever asked this so I can get the answer. We see, you know, I love this because, you know, you, you might have previously thought that before a session like this that we were talking about, you know, dangerous because they're listening to you. But now you might say dangerous in, well, we might think about are they dangerous to the environment? Are they dangerous <laughs> to the labour conditions of how they're produced? Um, but certainly if we just try to take it from the, the data side, you know, how is this data being used? Well, we've had some horror stories where, you know, initially it was like all of this data is never going to be heard by a person, it's being collected and it's completely private. And then there were multiple instances by several companies where it was found that, yes, people were actually listening to, humans were listening to things that were being discussed around in-home devices in order to fine-tune how they worked, right? So, of course, they're not private. And then, of course, you'd have to think about the enormous state surveillance infrastructures that can actually access. And again, this was the story that, that we learned from the Snowden archives is that you know one of the one of the other things I did for Atlas was actually spend time thanks to the filmmaker Laura Poitras with the Snowden archives and looking at the complete parallel universe of artificial intelligence in the military and specifically the intelligence agencies. I mean, that is where so many of these capacities have been developed over multiple decades. And to see the way those tools, certainly when the Snowden archives came out, I think six years ago now, when they were sort of first released, um, have now sort of moved very much into the commercial space and are being used in sort of domestic devices, are being used in kind of, you know, police settings. I mean, that, that devolution of essentially, you know, high-grade intelligence agency extra-legal tools, which are designed to be extra-legal. They're designed to go beyond what you should be doing legally with, you know, the way that you access telecommunications and data, and now being used by companies like Palantir and Salter Companies. So we have, you know, some real, I think, again, this is a question of this sort of shift from the way that these tools were first designed to be used in particular contexts, and they've now devolved to this municipal kind of local government level and, you know, essentially small companies being able to use these tools. And we saw that with Clearview AI, again, um, sort of harvesting tools and doing facial recognition at a scale the NSA would have been, like, delighted to be able to do that as recently as 10 years ago. So the, the speed of change here is, is, is sort of extraordinary as well. Um, but I think a long way of answering your question, is it dangerous? The, the question is, what are you most afraid of? <laughs> what's, your, what's your threat model? Um, and, I, and I think for me, the, the bigger concern is, you know, what do we expect these systems to do and who do they serve? And often it's, it's, it's you know, it's rarely us. One quick one before we go. Knowing everything that we know, where is the optimism? Where is the hope? Give me something happy here. <laughs> here's, the, here's the hope. Um, the hope is that nothing is inevitable. We're often told this story that technology is inevitable. Of course it's going to come. Oh, you have, oh, this is the latest thing. Of course you have to use it. You don't. All of these systems can actually be rejected. And there are zones of real pushback and refusal now. I'm sure many of you have seen the stories around facial recognition. We've seen multiple cities around the world pass ordinances to say, we don't want facial recognition here. We see it as toxic to just civil society. And that's profound. It's still early days, but we're starting to see these, these positions of saying, no, these, these tools aren't meant to be designed to be used everywhere. They're actually very specific for specific contexts. And they're is, you know, there, there are ways to say that's enough is enough, and we can actually regulate them and we can contain them. And so that, I think, is one of the great things to take from this moment in history is to say, 
you don't have to accept these systems, and we have this window to create real change. And that's something that we have to do collectively. Thank you so much, Kate, for your time. Thank you all for coming to watch. You can watch this talk along with others on demand on our streaming platform at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I'll see you next time.